kind of recap a little bit, and then we're going to jump into today's uh, lesson. We have uh, this week and then two other weeks in the book of Jonah, and then we're going to do a couple messages, kind of pre-messages uh, to the Be the Message series, uh, talk a little bit about getting involved and all that kind of stuff, so it'll be good, good stuff. So if you have your outlines ready to go, you're all good? And you know, in, in church, when I'm here, you've got to talk back a little bit, right? If you don't talk back, then it takes me a long time to get through all my notes. But if you talk too much, we'll escort you out of here. So there's that balance, all right? So we, uh, we looked at last week, as we started in the book of, of Jonah in chapter 1, um, we looked at the Lord spoke to Jonah, and we, we worship a God who wants to speak to us. He's an active God. All through from Genesis to Revelation, he spoke uh, to his children. Today, in today's current world, he speaks to us in our life. Um, we looked at that a couple weeks ago through impressions that he gives us, through scripture, through circumstances, through other believers. Um, he speaks into our life. And so, at the very beginning, in chapter 1, at the top of your outline, we see that Jonah was disobedient. God said to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, thanks, but no thanks, God. I don't want to go to Nineveh. And we'll talk a little bit, and we know this from last week. We know why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Now, the next picture should be a slide, or I mean a, a map. This is what we looked at last week. And so you see where A is, Gath Heifer. That's where uh, Jonah was originally from. And so he, uh, God spoke to him there. And he wasn't interested in following God, so Jonah left Gath Heifer, and he went to Joppa. So he went to the to uh, just a city over. Nineveh was to the north and to the east, around 500 miles. Remember, Nineveh is modern day Iraq, and so Jonah isn't interested in hearing what God has to say, and so he's going to go as far away from God as he possibly can. And so he's going to jump on a ship. And he's going to set sail, and he's going to head out to Tarshish, which is sea, and that's where it would be modern-day Spain today, all right? And so he's going to get as far away from God as he possibly can because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Now, remember I said this last week. If you write down on the top of your outline two words, you write down the word mercy, and you write down the word grace. Because all through the book of Jonah, that is really the theme that runs through it. Everyone thinks it's about a whale that swallowed Jonah, and we all fix ourselves on the whale that swallowed Jonah, but actually it's about God's grace and God's mercy. God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach because they were wicked. They were incredibly wicked people, and I shared last week that some of the things that they would do, they were such a, a, a ruthless group of people that when the, the, empire, the Syrian empire would go and invade into other, other countries or other people groups, um, many of them would commit suicide rather than fighting with, with them because they were that brutal. They would literally take the skin off of a living man, peel his skin off of him, and bury him into the sand to, the, to his shoulders, take a spike and drive a spike through his tongue into his head so that he couldn't swallow and he would be stuck in the sand. That's how brutal they were. And so when people would hear about them coming over and fighting them, they were a massive force, they would rather fall on their own sword than to fight these, these savages. And so God says to Jonah, hey Jonah, I got an idea. I want you to go to Nineveh to preach. Well, why? Because of my grace and my mercy. I want to give them an opportunity to respond 
to my love, my grace, and my mercy. And Jonah folds his arms and says, I'm not going to do that. I don't like them. They're ruthless. They're savages. And I'm not going to go there. And so he goes to the extreme opposite direction as he can. Now, at that time, Tarshish was probably like the farthest out anybody would know about. So if you could imagine, you know, if there was a way that we could, we, because of satellites and stuff, I mean, we kind of get it. But, but how far can you go from God? I mean, that's what he's thinking. I need to get away as far away from God as I possibly can. And so he's disobedient. And so then in chapter 1, verses 4, uh, 4 through 17, last week we looked at, God begins to get his attention. He begins to discipline him. And so he sends in waves, right? They're on a ship. It's a cargo ship. It's not a little rowboat. It's not a little raft. It's a cargo ship. And the waves and the wind are so strong that the sailors who make a living out on the sea are, are scared for their life. And, and they think that they're going to die. And so they call out to their little case G gods. They, they, they believed in gods for everything. God for wind, God for rain, God for this, God for that. And so they were, they were going to call out to God because of all the different waves and the storms that were taking place. And Jonah doesn't pay attention. He's sleeping in the hall of the ship, right? So then the captain goes to him and says, aren't you a prophet? Why don't you cry out to your God to save us? And Jonah's not interested in crying out to his God because he's as far away from God as he possibly can be. And so he doesn't listen to him. So through a series of events, they finally pull straws. They realize that it's Jonah who's the one that's causing the problem. And so the sailors go to Jonah and say, hey, listen, if you don't fix this, right, you got to save us. And so they start throwing over cargo over the ship. They try to row the ship into shore for safety. Nothing's working. So they finally ask Jonah, what are we going to do? He says, hey, take me, throw me into the water. Once I get into the water, everything will be calm. And so the sailors grab a hold of him, and you could imagine, it's not really happening, but this is how I would see it happen. You know, he got his leg, got his arm, right? And they're like, one, Lord, forgive us. We're about ready to kill this guy. Two, Lord, have mercy on his soul and my soul too. Three, right into the water, and it calms down. Everything is still. And God gets Jonah's attention. And a fish comes along, not a whale, Okay, it's not like the ride at Disneyland where you go in and there's a whale's mouth. It's a fish, and a fish swallows him. God, in fact, the scripture says, God provided a fish to swallow Jonah, and he swallows him, and there he is in the, the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. God has Jonah's attention. Chapter 2 is again about God's mercy and grace, but it's also now about Jonah's attention <laughs> that's been captured and how he begins to focus in on God. And chapter 2 is a prayer, and it's a beautiful prayer. In fact, some of us call it the Psalm of Jonah because it really begins to reveal his heart and his love for God and his, his picture of who he believes God is and God's mercy and grace in his life. And so, in chapter 2, we find where he's in distress. And chapter 2, verse 1, is where we're going to jump into today's lesson. So, ready to go? Verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah, what did he do? Finally. 
right? Now, pause, right? And let's just all wear it together. We're all going to raise our hand and say, yep, that's me. Isn't it interesting when things are going well, our prayer life is not that powerful? Come on, be honest, right? And when God gets our attention, whether it be through something that he's allowed in our life, in this case, he, he provided a fish to swallow Jonah, and when God gets our attention, isn't it true that our prayer life just elevates? Our relationship with God elevates, right? I mean, it just goes all of a sudden off the chart. And I'll be honest with you, for me sometimes, I have kind of, now it's not an out loud prayer because I don't, it's like praying for patience and God goes, okay, we're going to give you patience, right? But in, in, my, in my spirit, I oftentimes pray that I would experience a little bit of distress so that my prayer life is what it needs to be. I'm an A-type personality. Prayer to me isn't the first thought. Doing something is my first thought. And knowing who I am and how God has wired me, in the background of my spirit, it's like, Lord, I want a little bit of distress in my life because I want prayer to be a priority for me. And when God gets our attention, all of a sudden, prayer gets elevated. So he's in the belly of the fish in in verse 1, and he begins to pray to the Lord his God. And whenever I come across a verse and I talk about praying to God, I, I always leave here and I'll go home today and, and when I sit in my room and I just kind of begin to pray about all that took place, I always feel like I didn't do an adequate job explaining the privilege that we have of being able to go into the presence of the Creator. And I think sometimes with, with prayer, we just kind of, we don't really connect the dots. But, but Jonah understood that he had in the belly of the fish an opportunity to connect with the God in Genesis that said, let there be, and there was, to the God who piled a, a pile of dirt, blew into it, and, and man was created, took a rib from Adam and put it in the ground, and woman was created, a God who flung the stars into existence, and today, with all the technology, we're still going into space and we're discovering things that he flung into space. That God, we have the privilege of walking into his presence and calling on him. And Jonah's in the belly of the fish. And he says, I begin to cry out, right? I begin to, to pray to the Lord, his God. Number one in your outline. We have the ability to call on God, the creator of the universe. And again, I, I'm going to go home and I'm going to feel guilty because I just feel like it, it, it's not an adequate job. How do you explain the privilege that we have as sinful, crazy, screwed up people who've been saved by God's grace in our faith in Jesus Christ that we have the privilege of walking into the presence of a holy God and crying out to him. Remember I said, mercy and grace runs all the way through because the reality is God could have looked at Jonah and said, you disobeyed. Poof. You're done. But in his grace and his mercy, he didn't. In fact, we'll see in verse 3, the Lord came to him a second time, gave him a second chance. Aren't you glad we serve a God of a second chance? How about a fifth chance, right? <laughs> Who's counting? Too many, too many to count for. Look in Hebrews, a New Testament um, picture of, uh, of, of just entering into the presence of God. 
<clears throat> Let us then approach the, th- uh, the throne of grace with what? With confidence. So that we may receive, what would we receive? Mercy and, and find grace. There we go again in the New Testament. To help us in our time of need. That we again, as children of the King, that we have the privilege of walking into the presence of God. The concern that for me and for all of us is that God has to get our attention before we recognize the power of that. That somehow we miss it when everything's going well and all's doing good. It's like prayer. Oh yeah, I prayed. Oh Lord, bless us today. Off we go. Oh yeah, I prayed for you yesterday. It's like, oh yeah, bless so and so. Right? We, we don't really get down into serious prayer time. Verse 2. In my distress, and you can circle the word, I call to the Lord and he, answers, uh, and he answers me. From the depths of the grave, I call for help and you will listen to my cry. Two words to circle, the, the distress and, and the word grave. The word distress there in your outline, it means the travail of childbirth or labor. It means agony, it means discomfort, it means pain. Women, you know, if you've had children, you know what that is, that's like. I haven't had a kid. That good news. But I've been in the delivery room for three of my boys. And I can just kind of understand what this word means. Jonah's in the belly of the fish and he's probably saying, I don't know what it's like to give birth, but I once heard a woman <laughs> give birth and I'm telling you, that's what I feel like right now. I feel like that I'm being pressured. I feel it's like a contraction. In the Hebrew language, the, what's cool about the Hebrew language is every word is a picture, right? And so for us who are visual learners, man, the Hebrew language is so sweet to study because it's just a picture of each word. And so here he is in the belly of the fish and, you know, and he's thinking, never gave birth to, to a child, but I heard some woman do it. And I'm just telling you, when I'm in here, I feel the pressure, I feel the contractions, I feel the agony, I feel the pain, I feel everything that's coming around me. And then he goes on and he says, from the depths of the grave, and that's the word in the Old Testament, sheol. It can mean, in King James, it uses the word hell. It can be the living, or it can be the land of the dead. Um, it, it can mean the farthest distance from God. It's not necessarily speaking of eternal hell that we would say in the New Testament times, but that's kind of, it's the idea that it's the furthest from God that you could possibly be. And so he's inside the belly of the fish and he's crying out as this pain and the contractions and all that stuff's taking place. And he says, from the depths, from the furthest away from God, from this hellish place, I call out to God for help and you listen to my cry. I have nothing to offer you. I can't go sacrifice uh, something in the temple. I can't give to the poor. I, I can't do anything. I'm stuck in the bottom of the sea in a belly of a fish. And because of your grace and mercy, I call out to you in this hellish, painful situation. I call out to you and you hear me. Again, for us, as we sit here, you know, there are times in our life where you feel like you're the furthest from God. Something happens in your life, the doctor says, someone in your family says, you get the report, the boss says, hey, come in my office, and you feel like I'm, a, I'm as far away from God as I possibly can be. 
I feel the, the contractions, the pain, the discomfort of whatever the news that you're hearing, right? And in those moments, in those moments, Jonah recognizes that he has the privilege of walking into the presence of the God who flung everything into existence. And that even though he was disobedient, and even though God should have went, poof, Jonah, you're done, God in his mercy and his grace doesn't allow that to take place. And God provides that fish, which, would, which you would think would be like the worst nightmare possibly known to, to mankind. God provides that fish to swallow him and begin to get his attention and head him in a different direction. And even in that painful situation, we oftentimes think that in those hard times, it's like, God, where are you? God, why aren't you doing? God, how come you can't hear me? Why are you allowing or why are you causing me to go through these situations? And we think that God's hand isn't involved or a part of all those different phases. And what Jonah recognizes, number two in your outline, is that God still did a miracle. Right? God still did a miracle even in the midst of all that was taking place. And just below that you can put in that God is actively working even though we are still in pain. Even though we're still in pain. In, in those times where we feel like God is the furthest from us, God is still active and God is still working. If you look with me in your outline and just read through, God says to Jonah, go. Jonah says, no. So he gets on a ship in Joppa. He's heading to Tarshish. Phase one of God's activity is God sends a storm. Doesn't work. You ever have that happen? Where God sends something your way and you don't pay attention to it? Just me? Phase two, God sends a captain in. Hey, you need to pray. Not interested. Phase three, the sailors have mercy on him and they don't throw him overboard at first. And then the seas get so rough. Phase four, they throw him overboard and God sends a fish. Phase five, the fish gets a tummy ache and he spits them out, not to Nineveh. I've heard guys say, yeah, and the fish spit out Jonah to Nineveh. Okay, let's just imagine that the ship had set sail for a week. It would be roughly a year to get to Tarshish if they were to sail, so it's a long time. So let's just say that they were three or four days away. That would have meant that he would have been spit out, say, 600 or 700 miles wouldn't that be kind of cool, right? All of a sudden, it's like a scud missile. Whoa, what was that? It looked like Jonah. <laughs> ah! <laughs> so he was spit up onto shore. Now, here's a side note. This is all fun, free, and just because you ate breakfast, it will gross you out. Here's what, you know how a fish processes food? The digestive system, it begins to eat away at what they swallow, Okay. They have an acid in their stomach that begins to basically disintegrate whatever they ate. So with him being in there three days, some guys, you know, who are, who are, who are uh, I don't know, have spare time on their hands, figured that at a minimum, Jonah's, all of Jonah's hair would have been gone because his, his, the, the acid from the stomach of the fish, he would have had no hair and possibly part of the first layer of his skin would have been eaten up. And when he would have been, some of you are making faces, so I'll keep going. 
Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're like baiting me. <laughs> so if he would have been spit up onto the shore, it would have been like a mucus thing taking place. No hair, no, right? Now, the funny thing is that you think, you think, oh, gross, that's terrible. But Jonah, he's happy he's alive, right? He's like, praise God, right? I'm out of that fish. You know what a fish, the inside of a fish smells like? I don't know, but I know what the outside smells like. <laughs> so all through the phases of God getting his attention, he, God is still active in it. And just, just below that, all through the, the miracle that takes place, you can see the different phases where God is at work. And again, oftentimes in our life, God takes us through phases. He gets our attention and we want to get delivered then. It's like, now, God, deliver me. And he's like, no, you're not quite ready. I want to take you through some phases to build your character, to change you, to get you to a part where you're going to surrender. And that's what we're going to see with Jonah. In chapter 3, he surrenders and he's going to go to Nineveh to preach. And so God, has, God walks him through these steps to get us. And again, sometimes we don't see that. We think that when, thing, when God hasn't delivered us, that God isn't active. And that, that is absolutely not the case. He is incredibly active, even in the midst of it. Real quick on this building thing. You, you know, when we got ready to, our church here, um, we wanted to relocate the pastor way back when, in the early 70s, uh, or late 70s, early 80s, wanted to relocate. Wrote his doctorate thesis on how the church needed to move over to southeast Antioch, because that was the direction of all the growth was back in the 70s and 80s. So w- when we had a, basically a body of believers who thought, you know, hey, we need to grow and uh, need to go and, and move in that direction and through some serious uh, events and so forth that never took place. And so we were given where the land where Panera Breads is at, okay, and, and Office Depot. And so that five acres of land was given to us by our association of churches. It was given to another church in our association that wasn't doing so well. They were kind of going out of business. And so through some events, they, they offered it to, to us and to me and said, hey, you guys want to do it? We're like, yeah, absolutely. We love to do it, right? And so um, we had property. We had an apartment, a couple houses. We, we, were, we were healthy. We didn't have any debt. We thought we could do it. So we get the land. I go into the city of Antioch, go see the city planner and say, hey, we got the land now. It used to be at so-and-so's church. Now it's our church. We want to build a church. And the city planner said, no, no church is going to go there. So me, as bright as I am, I went back the next week. I figured I didn't ask the right way, right? So I went back in and I said, hey, we got the land now. We want to build the church there. What do we need to do? No, you're not going to build the church. You know me. So I went back a couple weeks later. Figured I'll ask it a different way. And this is true. He put his finger in my chest. And said, listen, you are not going to build a church. Understand that and get over it. Like, okay. So at that time, Slatton Group was looking to develop that piece of property. We obviously had a key part of that whole area over there. And so we sold that property to the Slatton Group for the highest per square foot of commercial land in all of East Contra Costa County. It was given to us. Right? So, I mean, it was millions of dollars. And so, I'm thinking, most churches want to move and build, and they have a vision, zero cash. Right? And so, we had a vision, and we had dollars in our hand. 
Now, how hard would it be to find five or ten acres of land in East Contra Costa County when you got a couple million bucks in the bank? How hard could that be? Well, for the next two years, we looked. The market was going up, and every time I would go in and we would try to put a, a bid on a piece of property, one of the developers would come in, no feasibility study, all cash, close in 30 days, done. Buchert, you're out of here. Beat it. Go, go find some other place. Time and time and time again, I would get beat out. Right? It's like, Lord, you gave us the land. Is that like a practical joke? I mean, it's like, hey, move. Psych, just kidding. God, where are you? Right? And over a long period of time, I went with a guy named Rico. We went to every farmer. I know every farmer in East Contra Costa County. Trust me. We had knock on the door, right? This is Pastor Dan. His church wants to move. He thinks your property is great. No. Clip, okay? I heard no, can't, no, can't, no, can't. I felt like a, like a three-year-old that has ADHD. You know what I'm saying? Some of you have some of those. Like, no, don't touch. No, sit down. No, you know, right? That's what I felt like. So finally, finally, one day we're driving up Empire and we stopped at the base of what now is the bridge. It wasn't the bridge then. And Rico says, hey, what about this property? I'm like, well, what's that hill? He said, it's an on-ramp. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. Let's go to your office and see what it is. So he rolls out this. We go to his office. He rolls it out. And it shows <clears throat> a picture of all the bypass of what it's going to be. And I thought, that is great. Absolutely. Let's go meet the farmer. So we drove over. If you've been around here for any length of time, peaches were sold here. Paul Lamborn. Visit Paul Lamborn. And he says, hey, this is Pastor Dan. His church is interested in buying the property. He says, go make me an offer. It's like, okay. Old school guy. We bring an offer to him. We say what the number is. He shakes my hand. And he says, deal. Right? I mean, that's old school, right? No, no. So then I'm thinking, hallelujah. Right? We're going to move. No. The bypass authority had control of the perimeter of our property because of all the roadways. We couldn't get onto our property to build. And we had to wait for them to be able to give us just access to this part. We couldn't do anything around the perimeter because they had control over all that. In fact, if you leave here today and you go out the gate on, on the east side of the building, 50 feet from the curb, you see a seam in the asphalt where it like stops. That's because that was as far as we could pave. That's where we had control. They had control of all the other. And so it took seven years for it to all happen. Now, I would be lying to you to say that I didn't have the thought a bazillion and eight times, God, get me out of here. This is a mess. But God's hand was active in every single step. To a point where, if we would have built before the bypass, we wouldn't, have, we, we wouldn't have been able to sell them property. We would have had to give it to them. And they actually bought an acre and a half for more than we paid for the seven acres that we have today. Right? So in the midst of it, there were times where it's like, God, where are you? Are you kidding me? This is horrible. But God's hand was in it all along. 
And so never forget that God's active even when we feel like, where are you? He is active in it. And we may feel distant. We may feel like he's not paying attention. But he definitely is. All through the miracle of Jonah, God was active. And God had a sovereign plan to change him into that image. Verse 3. You hurled me. So this is where he begins to pray. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the sea. And the currents uh, swirled uh, about me. All the waves and the breakers swept over me. Verse 4. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Now remember, he's writing this after he's been spit out. Okay, He's not writing this while he's in the fish. All right, So he's writing it as he's looking back in his life. You've banished me from your sight, yet I will look to you uh, uh, toward your holy temple. Verse 5. <clears throat> the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed, I like that picture, Wrapped around my head. So imagine, you know, you got seaweed, no hair. <clears throat> Verse 6, the roots of the mountain, uh, 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 the roots of the mountains, I sank down. Now he's thinking here, you know, as a tree has roots, he's, think, he's thinking if the mountains had roots, that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm as low as I possibly could be in the depth of this ocean. I'm as far down as I could possibly be. The earth beneath barred me, uh, barred me forever. And then here's where his whole disposition begins to change. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. And he begins to change his whole perspective as he begins to recognize that even in the midst of it, even where he felt like he's barred from the earth, where he's at this lowest point that he could possibly be, that God is so far removed from him and God is not happy with him, that even in the midst of that, he begins to recognize that God is active and that God is in the midst of all this that's taking place. And so in your outline, never forget the God moments. Never forget the God moments. Now I say this often, you do not live in your past your past mistakes. You learn from your past and you move forward in faith, right? You learn from the mistakes, you make the adjustments that you need to and you begin to move forward, okay? Now grab a hold of this thought. But all the activity of God, God answering your prayer, God revealing himself, God providing for you, God restoring your marriage, God restoring relationships, God providing for you financially, you never want to forget those. Because when you are in the depths of the sea, right? When you are in every office and everybody in the city is saying, no, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't. And every farmer's going, not interested, not interested, not interested. You've got to reach back into that file of recognizing and understanding when God was working and where God was working. And you got to pull it into your life to begin to reflect on those God moments. Otherwise, you will be faithless in it. And you will be relying on your own flesh. And so you pull back from the archives those God moments in your life and you never forget. And he recognizes that. He recognizes a time when he looked into the heavens and he cried out to God. 
And he, he recognizes that and he begins to do that as he understands that God is active in his life. Number three, the third idea is this. Painful events can cause us to remember and refocus our spiritual lives or, circle the word or, or walk away and became, become bitter toward God. You will break one of two ways. And this is true for everyone, and I bet you if we had time today and I asked you, hey, can you name a person that had an incredible walk with God and then something tragic happened in their life and they walked away from God? And you ask them, hey, why don't you come to church? No thanks. Hey, can I pray for you? No thanks. Hey, can I read a scripture? No thanks. Right? They've broken away from God. And you sit and you think, how could they do that? They were so strong in their faith. They had such a close relationship. How, how is it possible that that, that that takes place? And here's a reality. When we go through difficult times, if you're not remembering that God is active and you're not remembering the God moments in your life, you will, chances are, you will break away from God and you will become bitter toward God that God let you down, that God caused that all the pain and I cried out to God and he didn't do as I thought. And then we break away from God. Jonah breaks into God and he begins to lean into him in his life. And I've said this and some of you called me and you shared stuff about your life and I'll, and I'll say this to you each time. Every time you go through a difficult time, God has given you an opportunity to trust him in a greater way. Every time you go through a difficult time in your life, God is giving you an opportunity to trust him in a greater way. Lean into him. Remember the things that he's done in the past. Remember the answered prayer. Remember all the things that he's done. And lean into him and trust him in a greater way. Look what he does in verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, right? When it was completely falling apart and everything was going sideways. What did I do? I remembered you. I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. And in the midst of all that that's taking place, he recognizes. He recognizes and he remembers. He doesn't break away from God and say, this isn't right and I'm in the belly of the fish and how come and you know, all this stuff. He leans into God and he trusts God and it begins to refocus and give him a time where he remembers the activity of God in his life and his past. And so he leans into him. And in verse 8, he comes to a great realization. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the, what is the word? Grace, right? Remember, grace and mercy. They forfeit the grace that could be theirs. What are, what are the worthless idols that he's referring to? They're his idols. The first one is he was prejudiced against the folks in Nineveh. He didn't like them because they were wicked. And he didn't want to go to those people because he didn't believe that they needed to hear God's grace and mercy. They deserved to be judged. They deserved to be punished. Isn't it interesting? When we look at our own life, we want grace and mercy. When we look at someone else's life, don't we think, Poof. come on, be honest. Isn't it true? Come on, you guys are, oh no, I'm much too holy for that. Yeah, I'm out far. I just, I'm, my, my, my walk with, listen, Dan, I'm so close to God. I mean, I just think just like Jesus all the time. 
this is not my first day in the ministry, all right? And I am a fellow struggler just like you are. So, <clears throat> And so he comes to that point and, and he doesn't like them. And then the other one is self. I mean, he essentially tells God, God, I know what's best for my life. I don't want to go. Right? And so he comes to that and he recognizes the worthless idols. Now, they're not wooden statues. Right? Now, pause for a second. And again, this is a very strong reminder to all of us that when difficult times happen in our life, our prayer life elevates. Right? We all agree with that? Our desire to walk with God, our desire to come to church, our desire to be involved in a community group, it elevates off the chart. But when things are going well, the job's going good, the bills are being paid, the kids are minding, okay, right? All is all right. All of a sudden it's like, you know, I haven't prayed in a long time. And then you go, I, you know, I just don't have time. I don't have time. Now, isn't it interesting that when difficult times come, all this idols, not necessarily bad things that we do, all of a sudden we look at all the activities that we're doing and we're like, well, with what's going on in my life, that isn't that important. I'm going to spend the extra half hour in prayer. With all this that's taking place in my life and my relationship, you know what? I don't know that I need to go with so-and-so to whatever it is. Not that it's bad. It doesn't have to be sinful. But all of a sudden, we have all these little idols in our life that begin to take our time away from God. And an idol is nothing more than something that you have allowed to rise above your relationship with Christ. It doesn't have to be sinful. Okay? It doesn't have to be materialistic. It can be Little League Baseball. As much as I love baseball, it could be that, right? It could be hanging out with some, some guys or, you know, have go, girlfriends going on a little trip. It's anything that rises above our relationship with Christ is an idol. And when things are difficult, boy, I tell you, we sort out all those things that don't mean anything. But when life is good, we allow our calendar to get filled with decent, fun activities, but if it's preventing us from walking and growing in our spiritual life, it is an idol, folks. And we need to recognize that. And he's in the belly of the fish, right? And he's looking back in his life and he's saying, you know what? There's all kinds of idols that we have in our life and it's forfeiting us from experiencing the grace of God. Verse 9, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will, will, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. Now, we don't know what he had vowed, but we can take a guess. Lord, if you get me out of this stinky place, I promise you, I'll go to Nineveh. I'll tell them people what you think, right? You ever prayed that prayer? Lord, if you just get me out of this mess, I'll surrender my life. I'll give you everything. I promise I'll be involved in every ministry Pastor Dan mentions. Right? Come on. Isn't it true? If you heal my marriage, I'm telling you, God, if you get my kid that's wayward and you bring him in, I'm, I'll quit my job. I'll serve you for free. I'll go to the ends of the earth and tell people about your grace and mercy. 
right? Come on, come on. As I said last week, every time God calls you to do something, there's always a ship going in the other direction. Right? And that's exactly what took place in Jonah's life. And so he says, I have a vow. I'll make it. I'll make it good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, New Testament. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Sola feel, right? No works, no confirmation, no baptism, no church membership. None of that stuff matters. What is it? Faith in Jesus Christ. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. <clears throat> you've been, uh, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It is, and, and this is not from yourself. No works. No requirements that you've made God promises. Sola feel His grace. And it is a gift from God. Not by works. So that none of us can walk around saying, look how spiritual I am. It's all God's grace that saves us. Now before we go to point four, let me just say this. Oftentimes in church, I'll ask, hey, do you got a personal relationship with Christ? Yeah, I was baptized. It's good. But do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Oh, I was confirmed. Great. My parents dedicated me. I took the Lord's Supper. I took, I took the sacrament. It's great. I'm a member. Good. But do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you came, come, come to a point in your life where you admitted that you're a sinner, that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that you've confessed him as your Lord and Savior? Are you there? All the other stuff is fine. And all the other stuff we're going to tell you you need to do. But it's that personal relationship with Jesus Christ that matters. And so what I'm going to do before we get into point four is I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. My hunch is, is there may be someone who thought that their salvation was tied into a baptism that they did when they were a kid. It isn't. It's faith in Jesus Christ alone. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I do a little ABC. It's not anything fancy. It's not just a way of helping us kind of walk through it. And A is admit that we're sinners. Every single one of us are sinners. B is believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he died on a cross, that he rose again. And C is to confess him as your Lord and Savior. And if you have never done that, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. Silently as I say it, just silently repeat after me. Just say, Lord Jesus, today, I admit that I'm a sinner, that I've made mistakes. And I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he died on a cross and he rose again. And today, today, because of your grace and your mercy, I confess you to be my Lord and Savior. Lord, thank you for saving me. Lord, thank you for loving me. It's in Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, and we'll get to that in a moment. Number four, 